Okay, Jesse, last week's controlling creep still has my blood boiling. What's the story this time around? It was love at first sight for Regina Hartwell when she met 18-year-old Kim LeBlanc in 1994. A relationship ensued, but soon it became clear that the passion might be one-sided. When drugs and a new man entered the picture, one member of the love triangle ended up murdered. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bad exes, worse lovers, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please, please, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Yes, and speaking of Patreon, we're thrilled, as always, this week to welcome and shout out a new set of wonderful patrons. Welcome to Audra S., Caroline S., and Kelsey R., Tracy M., Kiana M., and Therese K., Lisa M., Marquita B., and Matilda O. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for being here. This is one of the first cases I thought of when we started the show. And I got a book about it, oh gosh, now like years ago. I think it was before we even launched our first episode because I originally saw this case on my favorite true crime show, not Forensics Files. What's my other favorite, Andy? It's like lust and murder or something. (laughs) Yes, it's scorned love kills. (laughs) I always loved the scorned love kills episodes. Yes, the classically bad show that has not just reenactments of the crime, but also weird soft porn sex reenactments, too. It's like, very on brand. You really want some Skinamax with your investigation discovery. We got you covered here. But I saw this show, the episode they did about it, which is season two, episode 20, called Love is a Drug. Gosh, like... 2013, I think, when it came out. Wow. Yeah. So I knew that someday, well, I actually did not know that I would have a true crime podcast when I watched it. So I definitely did not know that someday I would cover it. But when we launched the show, I knew that this was definitely one of the cases that I wanted to tell. So I think we should just get into it, right? I can't wait to hear the story that inspired Jesse as a wee little <laughs> true crime podcast. Wee little true crime lover. Yeah. I say it like I was young. I was a full-grown woman who got married that year. But I'm like, just as a child, I was watching this murder sex show. I was like, someday when I grow up, I'll cover this case. (laughs) We were working, but we were still children in our minds. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was July 4th, 1994. And the scene at Club 404 in downtown Austin was absolutely bumping. 24-year-old Regina Hartwell was the queen of the gay club scene. And that night, nothing could bring her down. There were white lines in the restroom and white strobe lights on the dance floor. The music pulsated. Pet Shop Boys bleeding into Madonna, Regina's favorite singer and personal icon. 
Regina didn't really look anything like her hero, but she tried to emulate her anyway. She was bold, brash, sexually adventurous, and veered toward the wild side. Regina stopped to chat with Diva, a drag queen drug dealer, and then bounced down to the basement level of the club to see if there was anyone down there she knew. Which, of course, there was. Regina was a popular regular in all of the Austin gay bars. She was fun, young, and rich. Ooh. It's quite the combo. Perfect friend to have around. Yeah. Regina loved nothing more than to shower her friends, both old and brand new, with drinks and gifts. This night was no different. Regina was buying a round of drinks for her table when one of her friends, an orientation leader at the University of Texas, waved over two strikingly attractive incoming freshmen. The 18-year-old sat down and Regina made animated conversation with tall, handsome Tim Gray, who happened to be gay, and his tiny, pretty best friend, Kim LeBlanc. Regina was instantly attracted to Kim. She was exactly her type, petite and almost elfin. The only problem, Kim LeBlanc was straight, or at least mostly straight. (laughs) (laughs) This, however, was a problem Regina believed they could overcome. And for a little while, it would seem possible that there could be a happy ending for the mismatched pair of trauma survivors. But when a tall, dark, and handsome man with a penchant for crystal meth came between the two women, one member of the volatile love triangle was doomed. Andy, this is a story about love, lust, devotion, trauma, and lots and lots of drugs. It's about abuse, substance abuse, but also emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. So that's your trigger warning here. And then I'll, of course, give you guys a little heads up before we get into the nitty gritty during the episode. All three members of this love triangle were failed by parental figures. All three were seeking love in all the wrong people. And they were filling a big hole that they had inside themselves with sex and drugs. (sighs) So other than the brilliant Scorned Love Kills episode that I watched so very long ago, I also read a great true crime book called Wasted by Susie Spencer. And it's kind of funny that my two main sources were Scorned and Wasted, because I feel like that might even be a good title for this episode. Scorned and Wasted, a toxic love triangle here. Did you rewatch the Scorned Love Kills? I did rewatch it. Yeah, it was funny because I had a very different idea about this case in my recollection of the episode than when I actually went down and sat and watched it again and, of course, read the book. In my mind, maybe it's just because Regina had a lot of money. I always imagined her a lot older for some reason than just 24, 25 years old. Yeah. Speaking of which, we are going to start about the eldest of this doomed trio, So chronologically, that was Regina, although she edged out the dude we're going to talk about down the line just by like some months or a year. Regina was born on February 6, 1970 in Pasadena, Texas. She was the only child of Mother Tony and Father Mark Hartwell. Mark, who was an airplane mechanic, was largely absent. It's not that he abandoned the family or anything. He just seemed like he was working a lot. And even when he was home, he was kind of just emotionally absent. Tony, who was, by all accounts, very abusive to sweet, strong-willed Regina, was not a great mother. The abuse ranged from psychological to physical. So we're going to talk about child abuse here. There was one instance that was discussed in the book where she was asking her mom for some watermelon and her mom didn't feel like giving her 
any watermelon. So she started basically like begging her and her mom totally lost it and made her eat the entire watermelon while she watched until she passed out. Oh, my God. That's horrifying. Yeah. And then Susie Spencer also described Regina's back as looking like Swiss cheese because of all the times her mother put out cigarettes on no. her. Now, I'm certainly not going to give this horrible woman any excuses for her behavior. But Tony was diagnosed with MS when Regina was seven years old, and she lived in excruciating pain day in, day out, which is the whole thing about the watermelon was that she didn't want to get up because she was in a lot of pain and she just kind of lost it on her child, which is obviously not right. Despite the abuse, though, Regina adored her mother. In fact, in future years, she would claim her mother was her best friend while she despised her father. There were a couple reasons for this. Number one, Regina was a very loving child who wanted a lot of attention. And I think sometimes any attention, even horribly negative attention, is better than somebody who pulls away from you, is never around, even when they're around, they're checked out and want nothing to do with you. So there was that for sure. And then number two, a tragic loss at an early age would result in Regina seeing her mother in a different light, maybe with only rose-colored glasses. Because when Regina was 12 and her mother was 37 years old, Tony was working as a cleaner for an aviation company that operated out of the Houston airport. On April 22nd, 1982, Tony went to leave work by passing through a personnel door that was built into a giant sliding metal hanger door, you know, like the big airport doors. And just as Tony was going through the door, another employee, having no idea that Tony was there, slid open a portion of the hanger with a tractor. So the hanger door slammed against the personnel door and immediately it snapped closed and crushed Tony to death in the process. Oh, my God. Shocking and horrific and just what you don't expect to hear when you're 12 years old and you find out your mother's never coming home because she was crushed to death at work. Um, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say that that caused quite a bit of trauma. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole thing is shocking, too, because this sounds like a factory accident from like 1882, not 1982. Regina was obviously beside herself. From that moment on, she rewrote her own history, casting her mother as the loving and caring mother that she never was. Or, of course, like abuse is not straightforward. Even if somebody abuses you, there's probably windows of time that they love you and hug you and buy you ice cream. It's just it's not like people are black and white. They're not terrible all the time. So she was clinging to the positive memories that she did have of her mother. I mean, what else are you supposed to do when she's gone forever? Exactly. Mark, Regina's father, sued the aviation company, and the family was awarded a settlement in 1986. Assuming that the numbers in the book were in 1986 money, the family was awarded $2 million in 1986 money, and basically Mark received $1.6 million, and Regina ended up getting $400,000 placed in a trust. Now, Regina's cut today would be more like $1.1 million. Wow. So that was in a trust, and the trust stipulated that Regina would get 40 grand, and that's in 1986 money, when she turned 18, and then various amounts at the beginning of every year until she was 25 years old, where she would receive whatever was left in the account. 25 is still young to get all that money. 
Yep, it is. After receiving the settlement, Mark Hartwell remarried and moved in with his new wife in a house 30 minutes away from his lost and bereft 16-year-old daughter. He just took off on her. Not cool. Absolutely. So the neighbors were very close with Regina. They had a daughter that was of a similar age. And so they called CPS. But CPS was like, look, she's got the heat on, the lights on, a roof above her head. He's providing food for her and she's 16 years old. Like, this isn't an ideal situation, but this isn't... What are they going to do? Take her to a care facility? Like, Yeah. Like, this is not a CPS situation. We're not going to put her in a foster home. Yeah. No. And Regina presented a strong bravado type front to anyone who cared, kind of spinning the abandonment that she truly felt as, oh, this is my freedom. I get to live independently. I can do whatever I want. You guys still have to answer to your parents. But she desperately internally wished that she had a parent who loved her and cared for her and wanted to take care of her, of course. So Mark gave her lots of money. He even gave her a Porsche. And this was obviously a way to alleviate his guilt about essentially abandoning his daughter. Regina, in turn, learned that the way to win people's affection was through money and gifts. She began to shower potential friends and crushes with expensive gifts like designer purses. She even bought one girl that she really liked, a used Mercedes convertible. Wow, I cannot even believe that. Like, how much money would that be? I have no idea. And also, if, if she wasn't 18 yet, that she didn't have access to her money. So Mark must have been giving her some money yep. to be able to do something like that. So this is a pattern that would continue for many, many years. Regina also buried her sadness in the classic combination of drugs, drinking, and sex. Even though sex with boys was never entirely pleasurable for her, when Regina was a high school senior, she met the older sister of a classmate, and then everything kind of clicked into focus for her. This young woman identified as bisexual and became Regina's first female lover. It was then that all of the crushes and intense friendships with other girls and lack of enjoyment and heterosex all of a sudden made much more sense to her. Regina graduated high school with a new sense of self. And if you were a baby gay in Texas in the late 1980s, I mean, there was only one city you're going to move to. New York City. No, Austin, Texas, if you're stuck in Texas. <laughs> Although you should be in New York. She loved New York, by the way. All I see her in is New York. Like when you're talking about her, I'm like, she's in, even when you were describing the opening scene, I know she's in Austin, but I was imagining her at this like bar that I know on the Lower East Side. She is obsessed with New York. So she takes a lot of trips there with her friends. But I don't know. I don't know why she didn't want to like make the big plunge and go all the way to New York. That's really, really far. And she was somewhat of a country girl, which she did try to hide a little bit. So... She moves to Austin and Regina was flush with the modern day equivalent of like 110 grand from her trust. Jesus. And she decided to remake herself. She banished the sad country girl with the tragic but very almost like blue collar ordinary past to give birth to a new version of herself that was tougher, more vibrant, more glamorous. Regina's icons were Madonna and Marilyn Monroe. So she had Marilyn Monroe posters all over her apartment, even into her later 20s. And she got a nose job in her late teens so that her nose would better resemble Marilyn Monroe's. Stop. Yeah. Wow. She was really into that look. Committed. 
Part of this transformation included becoming a gay club scene queen and partaking in various party favors, particularly cocaine and ecstasy. She enjoyed the drugs, but even more seemed to enjoy the image she associated with those drugs. In her mind, if she did those types of drugs, she was a hedonistic sophisticate. Yeah, of course. Especially in the 90s, because this is in the 90s, right? This is in the 90s. Yeah. So she felt like this was like, that was like the upper level drugs. And she was just like, like a wild child on the scene. But she really did like to share with her friends. She loved nothing more than to treat friends and lovers to fancy trips around the world, taking them to Europe, to New York City, limo rides from club to club. And she always stocked her limos with bottles of Dom Perignon, her favorite champagne. Living. Mm-hmm. One ex-girlfriend said that she could not mention anything like that she wanted ever or like if they went out to the mall and she was like, oh, I passively said that I like that shirt. She would like surprise me in the car with it. It was just one of those situations. She was just very, very, very generous. Regina had probably one or two very, very solid friends, maybe three actually now that I think of it, that very, very deeply cared about her and saw the real her. There's one guy named Jeremy Barnes who is on the Scorned episode, and he's also quoted in the book. And he was absolutely a very real and good friend to her. And she did have a couple of meaningful girlfriend-type relationships. But this type of largesse, especially when you're talking about lots of drugs and drinking and club kids, also leads to a lot of users, takers, and fair-weather friends. Regina did not care. She just wanted to blow her blood money, as she called it on things that made her feel good, and giving and partying made her feel good. I think she also wanted to feel loved, even if it was temporary. It's like the high from a drug is temporary, and also the high from giving somebody something they want, like a drug or a gift, is also temporary, but she didn't care because she felt like she had more coming to her. It was like this endless stream of money, and when she was really down, she said she liked spending it because she hated how she got it. I mean, that totally makes sense. Also, though, like there is a way to give and have it be like long term. I think just within the circles in the world that she's creating, it's definitely going to be like a quick fix. All of this tracks for what she went through. Yeah. At the end of every year, though, she was always broke because she got her settlement money. She's a child with a bunch of money. So, yeah, that 18, like she gets it at 18, 19, 20. So, of course, she'd go from like spending money. I'm talking limos, Dom Perignon, European vacations. And then by the end of the year, she's literally borrowing money so she can pay her rent. Is that surprising at all, though? I don't think budgeting was one of our like top skills that we had when we were (laughs) 18. Well, we didn't have this type of money, but we shouldn't have had this type of money because you don't think responsibly at this point. She was a young woman of complication and contradictions. On one hand, her behavior and some of the things that she said to other people suggested that she didn't really think she had a future. She didn't really care about blowing her money. She didn't go to school. She didn't really work. She had like some lower level random jobs here and there, but nothing you would call a career. And she was very much like live fast, die young, leave a pretty corpse type of mentality. And I also think this has something to do with her mother dying at 37 years old. Of course. So there was that side of her. But then some of her ex-lovers said there was another side of her that when this like 
Madonna or tragic Marilyn Monroe figure shield dropped that she said really what she wanted in life was to find a loving partner and have children. Really? Yeah. But it was like that part was so deeply hidden inside of her because there was just something maybe because of her parents that she felt like maybe she was unlovable, which is the same reason why she gave things to people so much because she was trying to buy their love. So it was like almost like something that was hard to admit that she could want like real true love and to raise a family. It just didn't maybe seem possible. Well, she still held out hope. And in 1994, when she was 24 years old, Regina met a college freshman at a club on the 4th of July and almost instantly fell in love. 18-year-old Kim LeBlanc was tiny. She was just five foot, but Regina wasn't much taller. Regina was 5'1", I believe. Oh my God, they're both tiny. They're both so tiny and neither one of them, I think like Kim like maybe weighed 100 pounds. Regina was a little bit heavier, but not by much. But there was also something behind Kim's pretty face, a certain sadness that indicated she, like Regina, had survived a less than perfect childhood and adolescence. So right now, there's just something more than just her looks. There's a fragility there to her that she was attracted to. So let's talk about Kim. Kim was born on May 17th, 1976 in Houston, Texas. But it seemed like her biological father pretty much dipped out of the family pretty shortly after she was born. I don't think he was like gone, gone forever, but just was not involved in her upbringing directly, it seemed like. And it's definitely not Matt LeBlanc. I don't think it is. (laughs) When Kim was one and a half years old, her mother Kathy remarried and moved to Dripping Springs, a cowboy community outside of Austin. Mm -hmm. Kathy's new husband was a man 10 years her senior named Ken LeBlanc. Ken had been in some sort of workplace accident that resulted in him getting disability and I think some sort of settlement as well. And he had Walmart stock. So he was fairly well off, even though he did not have to work. So he ended up staying home with Kim while Kathy worked as a legal secretary. So Kim reported that Ken was an absolutely amazing dad when she was a child. She even ended up taking his last name. I'm not sure if he ever formally adopted her, but she looked at him as her real father and as her confidant and the parent she could tell anything to. But that all changed when she was 14 years old. So... Giving it away, but I got a trigger warn you guys for sexual abuse now. Ugh, God. I know. So she was confiding in him that one of her girlfriends had had sex at 14 years old, which she felt like was too early and gross. And this creeper was like, oh, don't worry. I won't let that happen to you. I'll just teach you myself. What a pig. And then he continued to rape her for four years until she left the house. And she never told her mom. She never told her mom, but he told her that she could not tell her mom because her mom would leave him. And he was like, you know, your mom, she can't get along without me. I do everything for her. So it'll ruin her life. It'll ruin your life. How are you going to get on? Totally threatening her. And Susie Spencer wrote that she was too messed up about this whole turn of events to really sit down and think about it rationally that her mother loved her and that her mother had a good job as a legal secretary, that they would have been okay. They would have made it work. But at the time, she had so much shame and so much guilt and was reviewing every 
interaction she'd ever have with her stepfather, what had happened. And she thought she had done something to seduce him or like make him think that this was a possibility or something she wanted. It's her fault. She thought it was completely her fault. And so that was, I think, another part of being scared to tell her mother, which is exactly what abusers do. We've talked about it before, but they prey on that shame, on that guilt. They threaten with certain livelihoods, et cetera. And that's 100 percent what this guy did. So he should be in jail. Well, we'll talk about what happens to him. So around this time, she began turning to drugs and drinking and sex with boys her own age to cope. However, even though her home and inner life were in terrible turmoil, Kim presented a very confident and successful front. She was a cheerleader as well as in National Honor Society, and she eventually graduated fourth in her class. She's very smart. She was accepted at University of Texas and ended up attending with her best buddy from high school, Tim Gray. On that fateful night, the two incoming freshmen met Regina Hartwell at Club 404. Two weeks later, Regina was already wooing Kim, buying her all the drinks when they went out and introducing her to everyone in the scene. Around this time, a friend reported that Regina pulled her aside and said, I swear to God, I would kill for Kim. I'd do anything for her. I love her so much. She is so beautiful. I swear to God, I'll kill anyone who tries to steal her away from me. Oh, shit. A little foreboding. Kim liked Regina a lot, but despite Regina's efforts, the relationship was platonic, albeit a little flirtatious, for a few months. Kim wasn't opposed to having a lady lover. She had had sex with a female friend while on ecstasy in high school. She just knew deep down that she was very predominantly straight. It's kind of like, if it happens, it happens, but I'm not somebody you want to build a serious relationship around. Yeah, and I think that that's why maybe I imagined Regina a little bit older when I remember hearing this story because even though 18 and 24 isn't that far off, it just did feel like it was like the work of an older man trying to win a younger woman over with gifts and things. It surprised me that she was so young upon rereading about this case. 24 to 18 is like a big difference, though, if you think about it. It's still significant. Yeah. Yeah, like she's out of the house and she is living on her own, but just barely. Just barely. I feel like also if you can like for Regina, if she's been able to like buy everything else that she likes, like it's like what makes Kim any different? You know what I mean? She's her new thing that she wants to have. So new possession. So what started with free drinks and drugs turned into fancy cruises and exotic trips. And then it morphed into Regina leasing Kim her own apartment and giving her an ATM card that she was allowed to withdraw $300 a day with. A day? A day. And I didn't even translate that into modern day money. So it was a lot more probably. So obviously Kim was getting a lot of material gains from this relationship, but even without sex, which it's a point of confusion about how much sex was actually happening in this relationship. And it certainly wasn't happening for a long while. Regina was getting a lot of other things from the relationship. Kim actually brought her home and introduced her to her mother. Kathy was accepting of the relationship and she was very warm to Regina. She took care of her. She told her to stop spending so much money and to take care of herself. 
it was the mother that Regina had always craved. So she's thinking, if I have something long-term with this woman, then I get Kathy, the mother, in the package, of course. And the relationship did turn sexual. Like I said, the details about their sex life have always been kind of murky. It seemed more like when the women did drugs together, particularly ecstasy, they had sex or something close to it. And they did a lot of drugs. Regina was very enabling and... I don't necessarily think it was like creepy predatory, like I'll give her drugs so she hooks up with me. Based on the other things she gave Kim and how she treated her, although that could have been part of it, it felt like more like Kim wanted drugs and Regina was going to give Kim anything she wanted all the time. And it just so happened that when Kim was on drugs, she was feeling a little bit more sexual and flirty and open to exactly. having a sexual yeah. experience with her. Yeah, because there's no other reports of Regina having any sort of creepy behavior. Obviously, Susie Spencer interviewed all of her friends, people on the scene, ex-girlfriends. And there was no report of her like making a habit of doing something like this with drugs and girls. So it just seems like to me that was probably a side benefit of her giving her drugs, but it was because Kim wanted drugs. Well, things did come to a head in January of 1995 when Regina did a big New Year's party trip to New York City. She always did a big like New Year's type trip because she had all that money again. So she had limos full of Dom and all the drugs that they could do. And like we talked about earlier, like the New York scene in the 90s was crazy. So she was like, let's just do drugs. Let's party. This is like the city that never sleeps. Let's do this thing. And she was really like cozy. Like she was very much introducing Kim as her girlfriend making it clear they were a couple, they were being affectionate when they weren't doing drugs. It was just clear that they were a couple. And that eventually made Kim realize that she could not continue this relationship the way it was going because she just didn't feel confident she wanted to be anyone's girlfriend. So on this trip, she just straight up said, I'm not a lesbian, so I don't want to do this anymore. And she's like, I want to be your friend. And if that means you're not going to pay for stuff for me, that's fine. But I don't want to keep living this lie. And she also told her that she had a complicated relationship with sex in general because of what had happened to her in her past. And she talked about that with Regina, which, of course, made Regina feel very protective towards her and understood completely where she was coming from, that this is a, a individual I mean, no individual should be forced or coerced into any sex they want at all. But realizing that she had a complicated history of sex. So just because she seemed like she was into it doesn't necessarily mean it's something that they should continue to do. Yep. And was this a drug-fueled conversation or? No, I think they had it sober. I think she got like fed up one night when they were all on drugs. And she was kind of like, Regina was like all over her and being like, my girlfriend this, my girlfriend that. And then they ended up having a conversation sober and Kim ended up leaving the trip early. She flew back to Austin before the rest of the people went because she was pretty sure that she was done, although she did want to stay friends. And they did. I mean, Regina just could not shake what was in her heart. And she tried to rebrand it as, I just care about this individual. So we could never end up together. We could never, ever have sex again. And I would be totally fine with that because I just love her and I have this love for her in my heart and I want to make sure she's okay. Like an affinity. Yes, there's an affinity there. And so she was like, I still want to take care of you. I'll still pay your rent. And she continued to shower her with presents. That February after they had just broken up, 
Regina turned 25 and she got the last chunk of her settlement money. Ooh. And she is not spending it wisely. She purchased herself and Kim matching Jeeps. Um. She, yeah, matching Jeeps. She gave Kim an expensive engagement style diamond ring. So that's a mixed message. And she also gave her a Gucci watch. But Kim's accepting all of these. Absolutely, she is. That's so funny. My next line was, well, Kim continued to accept these gifts (laughs) as well as her rent getting paid. And the drugs that Regina had to offer, she also knew that she had to get back on her own feet and eventually break this financial hold that Regina had over her. Because even though they were friends, quotation marks, everybody knew Regina was still in love with Kim and Kim knew it. And isn't she like a freshman or sophomore? Like, shouldn't she be living in dorms? No. Yeah, she moved out of the dorms into the apartment that Regina got her. And so now we're in May of 1995. So she is on break from school. She is in between her freshman and sophomore years. And in May of 1995, she got a job at a world gym, which was actually, she grew up like right outside of Austin. So this was a gym that she had worked at in high school. And so she basically went back to this job over the summer. Being back in that environment made Kim realize that she had not been with a guy since high school. And she was now craving... That sort of companionship, if you know what I mean. A big old D. (laughs) Yes. To put it impolitely, indeed. Indeed. I mean, the gym's a great place to find that in your 20s. To find some Texas beefcake. Yeah. Beefcake. So she basically, one day she's working the front desk and she's like, okay, the next guy who walks in the door, I'm going to ask out. I'm just going to. Haven't done the whole that's ballsy hetero thing for a while. The next guy who's my age-ish, I'm going to ask him <laughs> out. <laughs> and as if she cast a spell, a six foot four hunk of a man who was built like a professional football player rounded the corner. Wow. Six foot four is tall. That is tall. She smiled at him. He smiled back. He was 23-year-old Justin Heath Thomas. And Andy, he was a lot of trouble. Is he cute, though? It's, like, complicated. Like, he looks a little too caveman-y for me. But a lot of people said that he was very cute and that he was even cuter in person because he had a really nice smile. So when he smiled, even though he was, like, this kind of big hulking giant, there was a sweetness about him. So it's just something that maybe pictures don't really quite do perfect justice to. Especially because if you see a picture, you don't see, like, the fact that he's a well-built, really tall guy, which is always visually impressive, I think, when you're just, like, out and about, even if the guy's not a model in the face. So, yeah, she was like, yes, absolutely, yes. Very soon after this meeting, Justin and Kim would embark on an extremely sexual love affair that would spell the beginning of the end for one of our main subjects here. So let's go back and talk about who Justin was. Unfortunately for him, his backstory is just as screwed up as Regina and Kim's. Justin was born to an 18-year-old mother named Judy and a Vietnam vet father named Jim. The couple had only married because Judy got pregnant, and they were divorced by the time Justin was three. Though neither of these individuals were fit to raise children, Judy did technically get full custody with Jim getting visitation over the summers, 
But in reality, Justin spent much of his early life with his grandparents while Judy drank and did drugs and married and divorced multiple times. Occasionally, while married to some of these guys, Judy would try to play happy family and have Justin move back in with them. But more than one of these stepfathers were abusive to Justin, like getting hit with a paddle or a belt, that sort of thing. And when the relationships would fall apart, Judy would blame her young son for the divorces, at one point telling him that he ruined everything for her, he had ruined her life, and that she hated him. And also Judy did attempt to commit suicide a number of times, so I don't know if any of those attempts were in front of him or around him, but it was just a very unstable and chaotic childhood. Justin had his first taste of alcohol at three years old, and he tried smoking marijuana by the time he was seven years old. When he was 13 years old, so this is another trigger warning for sexual assault, he was being babysat by an 18-year-old neighbor girl, and they had sex. At least that's what he called it because of gender norms and double standards when it comes to sexual assault for underage boys versus girls and his own machismo. Justin contended that this was consensual, of course, but he's 13-year-old child and she is technically, we were talking about it, 18's a very weird cusp time. You're not really a child, you're not an adult, but she is a legal adult woman getting paid to babysit him. I think that's the issue. You're babysitting him. What kind of sicko sleeps with their babysitting charge? Like, that means that his mother felt, and his mother has terrible judgment, that he still needed somebody to watch over him. Oh, God. So, yeah, of course, like, he didn't paint it like that. He painted it more like he was so old and attractive that this 18-year-old woman couldn't resist him. But that's that's because these are the stories we tell people, that men can't have feelings and they can't be victims, that they have to be, like, cool and tough, and then that's awesome if they, like, nail an 18-year-old babysitter. But hopefully I think that's changing. So around this same time, he was just openly defying his mother too. So he had that sexual experience and then he just starts straight up smoking pot in his mom's house. And I don't know if she was married, not married at this point, but they were fighting all the time. And he's like, you can't make me do anything. So he at that point was like, I want to go live with dad. She's like, great, go live with dad because you are impossible to manage. So his dad at that time, his dad moves around a little bit. So at that time he was in Oregon and he went to live with his father Who did not do any better? His father was cooking meth. And by the time Justin was 14 years old, he was addicted to meth. Mm -hmm. So apparently his grandparents at some point offered to, I don't know, buy him something or get him a car when he was of age to get him to come home. And he ended up going home at that point where he essentially started living a double life. On one side, he was a handsome, popular football player with aspirations to play college ball. But on the other side, he had the dark, seedy side. He was becoming a big-time drug dealer. When he was only a teenager, he started obviously just selling pot. But by the time he graduated high school, he was selling pot, coke, heroin, acid, pharmaceutical pills, and crystal meth. How do you even, like, keep track of that? It is a lot. And crystal meth was 100% his personal drug of choice. During his senior year, he fell head over heels in love 
with a brunette beauty pageant queen named Dawn. She was also a senior, and she was very much attracted to the softer side of him. It was uh, like one of those classic situations. She was from, I think, a good family. He's from the wrong side of the tracks. He's like this big, handsome football player. She knows he's got a dark side, but she got him to stop drinking for a while. And I think she really believed that she could turn him around and they could have a future. But Thomas' family history repeated itself when 18-year-old Dawn discovered she was pregnant. No. And her and Justin were expecting a baby. Dawn's family insisted that they get married. So they did in like a big like $40,000 wedding. Whoa. Soon thereafter, they welcomed their son Preston. Unfortunately for Dawn, Justin's double life never stopped. He ended up getting depressed after not getting scouted for any colleges for football. So still trying to go straight, he did get a construction job with Dawn's family. I think her uncle had a business. And he, I think for a little while, did try to stay on the straight and narrow. But after not making a lot of money in construction, he was like, screw this. I could make my entire year's salary in one month if I was selling drugs. Why would I not do that? That's actually better for my family. But what's definitely not good for your family is that, yeah, is doing doing illegal drugs, selling illegal drugs and cheating on Dawn when you're on said drugs, which he just didn't think it was a big deal. He's like, I don't know. I just thought like all guys like cheat on their wives. You just don't cheat with anyone that means something to you. It's like, what? Yeah, he was still contending. He was totally in love with his wife. All the while he was cheating with random girls that he sold drugs to or did drugs with. How about no cheating at all? Yeah, how about fidelity? Feelings or no feelings? I'm like pretty sure you should have listened to your wedding vows at that fancy wedding a little little closer. But yeah, so when he slipped back into this lifestyle, he was just getting sloppy. Dawn's obviously finding out about this. This is not the type of person you want to have a baby with. And so Dawn did leave Justin. And after that, he went like full spiral, serious, violent drug dealer after this. He ended up dating another drug distributor named Dorothy Brown. And it looks like there was some sort of trouble with another big time drug dealer. It's like Dorothy had lost some of the drugs or they had done the drugs or for whatever reason, they did not have the money to give this guy, Rafael Rafa was his nickname, Noriega. So basically, Justin owed this guy a lot of money. And he was freaked out about it. So one night he called this guy and he told him he had his money, even though he did not. And he told him to meet him in the middle of the night in this random area. And he's like, so I can hand over all this money. Obviously, I don't want to do it in the middle of the day somewhere where people might see us. I feel like it's safer to do it in the middle of the day, to be honest. (laughs) I think so. It definitely would have been safer for Raphael because when he stepped out of the car to get his payment, instead... Justin shot him dead. Wow. It's like savage and like such a crazy statement then. He's like 19 or 20 and he's already a murderer now. Think back to sex ed for a moment. You probably learned all about how to prevent pregnancy, but what about how to plan for it? That's why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within six business days. 
you'll get insight into your hormone levels, like your ovarian reserve, aka if you have more or fewer eggs than average for your age, and other important factors that can impact your fertility. The results go deep into what every hormone means, and you can download the results to review with your doctor for the next steps. Andy, this is just such an awesome product. I know, it's so spectacular. Did you know that one out of eight couples struggles with infertility? I mean, you know we did. <laughs> it's still yeah, just I know. such a hush-hush, hard-to-talk-about topic for so many people. But with companies like Modern Fertility, there are more resources available than ever. I don't understand why it's such a hush-hush topic still, but having this at your fingertips and being able to learn more about it on your own terms is just spectacular. I definitely wish there had been a product like this when we were struggling with getting pregnant with my daughter five years ago because this would have given me so much more peace of mind. I think even if you don't necessarily want to have kids, it's still important information to know about your body. Absolutely. It's also extremely affordable. Traditional hormone testing at Fertility Clinic can cost over $600, but Modern Fertility tests the same general set of hormones for only $179. And if you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder, you can get $20 off your test. Plus, you can get reimbursed for the test through your FSA and HSA. If you want kids today or maybe one day in the future, clinically sound information about your body can help you make the decision that's right for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. That means your test will cost $159, which is a fraction of what it would cost at a fertility clinic. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. Modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. Hear that sound? You should know what that means already. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. And the moment another business dream becomes a reality. Oh, Shopify. It's your favorite company, Andy. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling your favorite collectible or beautiful houseplants or, like me, dreamy vintage and unique items from around the world, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can focus on successfully growing your business. Shopify covers every sales channel, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. It even lets you sell across social media marketplaces like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without having to learn any new skills in design or code. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support your success every step of the way. Jesse, you know starting a store like Ririku was a dream of mine for a really long time. I always wanted to have my own brick-and-mortar store. And obviously now in 2023, that also means having an e-commerce store. One of the biggest barriers for me was learning to code, something that seemed very daunting. And having something like Shopify made so many parts of that easy. They have templates for you to choose from, different designs. It's almost like coding by colors. And then voila, you have a website of your own. And I love your website. It's so cute. I do need to update it right now because she's still on <laughs> Valentine's Day mood. It's really, really fun and easy to play around. And I end up just spending hours absorbed in all of their templates and formatting that they have. It's pretty awesome. What's incredible to me about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify is there to empower you with confidence and control to revolutionize your business and take your business to the next level. 
Now it's your turn to get serious about selling and try Shopify today. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash lovemurder. Hey lovers, Jesse here. Andy and I want to introduce you to a great podcast called Coffee and Cases. Allison and Maggie bring light to unsolved cases with kindness, empathy, and intrigue. You guys know we don't do a ton of unsolved cases over here at Love Murder, and that's why Coffee and Cases is the perfect complement to our show. We talked recently in a current affairs about how important it is to examine these cold cases. And Allison and Maggie do so with compassion in hopes of bringing justice for the loved ones left behind. Check them out wherever you find your podcasts and remember to subscribe and review. Greetings from the bluegrass state. That's Kentucky, if y'all didn't know. We want to tell you about the hottest new podcast on the block, Coffee and Cases. If you fancy yourself an at-home detective. If you find yourself yelling at the TV during that new true crime documentary. Then you, my friend, are a certified sleuth hound. Just like us. On Coffee and Cases podcast, you'll hear about the missing, the murdered, and the unsolved. But the cases you've rarely, if ever, heard about. All from the perspective of two teacher friends, rule followers, and self-proclaimed scaredy cats. Join me, Allison, and me, Maggie, each week as we take on cases that are often overlooked but are screaming for justice. Finally, a true crime podcast where you don't have to monitor the foul language. Coffee and Cases is a true crime guilty pleasure that you don't actually have to feel guilty about. Check out Coffee and Cases every Thursday for a new episode on your favorite podcasting app. So he ended up disposing of Rafa's body only about a half mile from a chicken farm that was owned by a relative of Justin's. Now, I guess there was some sort of like drug operation that was happening there or out of there or near there or something because Justin's whole family, the ones that are on like his side, the Thomas family, seemed kind of messed up. They're also the chicken in the Patreon story with the body. (laughs) Yes. Yes. We just we just talked about that. Now, Dorothy Brown witnessed everything. So she was in the car and watched it all go down. Justin fled California where the murder had taken place. But he did eventually get Dawn to come back to him and try to be a family once more. And that was because he promised to clean up his act and he joined the army. When Noriega's body was later discovered, Dorothy Brown was questioned and she straight up told the authorities that the killer was Justin Thomas. But for some reason, he was never pursued. Huh. Yeah, I don't know if it was that there was other cases that took precedent over a drug dealer being gunned down in the commission of a crime or that Dorothy was very unreliable and that she had been arrested for stealing a car. So maybe when she's telling them this, they don't necessarily believe her. Or because he's in the army and they're protecting him. I don't even know if they went so far as to look him up. It wasn't clear to me. Maybe they like went to look him up and they're like, ah, eh, he's in the army now. It's fine. But I, I don't know. It just seemed like they didn't really pursue it at all. In the beginning, army life suited Justin. But after he returned from deployment, he heard some rumors that Dawn may have hooked up with another soldier while he was away. 
and Justin was furious. Oh, come on. That's the biggest double standard I've ever fucking heard. Like, yeah, he's he's obviously not looking in the mirror here and reflecting on how often he himself had been unbelievably unfaithful in his marriage. And he ended up going down just another dark spiral of drugs and drinking, cheating, being physically abusive now to a terrified Dawn. She had some really terrible stories to share about being frightened that he was going to legitimately kill her. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know why she's still, like, even entertaining him. I think that they were just so young, and I think that you have a pull to try to keep your young family together. But obviously this wasn't great. I mean, they were fighting so much that when Dawn's mother came out to visit them, they, I think they were stationed in Hawaii at this point, she ended up taking Preston back home with her. She was like, the baby's not going to be in this situation. Or I think at this point he is maybe like two or three. She's like, he's coming home with me. Yeah. And that's like a horrible age to start like remembering. And- coming into consciousness. And that's what your memories are. Yeah. So after he failed multiple drug tests, the army put him in a six-week rehab program which he didn't even try. He was still using drugs while he was in this rehab program. So obviously they're going to test him. He failed again. And they said that he was actually a very good soldier. That's why they had tried so hard to get him clean. But he obviously wasn't taking it seriously. So they kicked him out of the military. I mean, come on. What else are you going to do? This was a miserable time all around because while this is going on, Dawn found out she was pregnant again. With him? We don't know. There's some paternity questions about this baby. She later tells him that the baby is not his, but I don't know if it was like to save the baby from him or to hurt him or if it was because it just genuinely was not his. So she ended up going back to her family in California, though they did stay in touch. Justin did not feel like he could go back to California where he would either be picked up for the murder of Rafa Noriega Or Noriega's associates could come after him and murder him for revenge. Yeah. So he's like, I don't think I want to go back there because this all happened around where Dawn was going and where her family was. So Justin ended up moving to Texas where his father was now living with a new wife. He did start selling drugs, but he also got a job as a personal trainer at a local world gym, which is where he met just about to turn 19-year-old Kim LeBlanc. So Justin turned Kim on to crystal meth, and in the shake of a lamb's tail, the two were having wild, drug-fueled sex romps. Oh, my God. Kim told Regina that she had a new boyfriend, and outwardly, Regina seemed shockingly calm about this, but friends said behind closed doors she was seethingly jealous. Kim had likewise warned Justin about Regina. She explained that they had a relationship, but it had ended because Regina was a lesbian and Kim obviously wasn't. However, they still messed around a little here and there, and Regina paid her rent and hooked her up with drugs, cars, whatever she wanted. Regina was a good friend and, yes, an ex-lover, but she was also funding her life. And obviously Justin would get to enjoy this too. He could stay at her apartment. He could get all the drugs and drinks that he wanted. She would take that $300 out a day and just hand it to him. He could also ride in the Jeep. (laughs) He could also go on the Jeep rides like a fuzzy dog putting his head out the window. (laughs) But yeah, so she's like, look, like this might seem weird to you, but you get something from this too. And I don't want the gravy train to stop. So find a way to get along. And the way that these three got along is over their one shared interest, which is drug use. 
So they ended up doing coke together, doing crystal meth together. And then sometimes when they were all screwed up on drugs, it would turn sexual between Regina and Kim. But every time Justin tried to get in the mix, Regina would stop him. Okay. She would tell him that she was like super grossed out by dicks, that it would make her sick to be with him. And then also she would kind of mock him and say, by the way, why would I even do that? Because my dildo is so much bigger than you. Yeah. So this seems like this was pointed at Justin specifically because some of her ex-girlfriends said that they had participated in threesomes with men before. And she had some history of having sex with men. That doesn't mean just because you have a history of having sex with men means that you don't come to a point in your life where you're like, absolutely not. I'm not saying that. It was just that it was more like pointed towards him. It was that she wanted him to know it wasn't happening. He didn't have power over her. He might have some sort of situation with Kim. He wasn't going to get one up on her ever. And she was like really the gender norm dude in the relationship because she's funding everything for everyone. You know, she's like, oh, no, you don't get to like have this thing on me. Which, of course, drove Justin crazy. Yeah. He hated this. So these are like the little seeds of discontent that are blossoming. Being planted. Yeah, they're being planted right now where it's clear that Regina and Justin don't really get along. But Regina's hanging out with him because she doesn't want to lose Kim. And he's hanging out with her because he wants her money. He doesn't worry about Kim. He's like, Kim's with me. But it's annoying that... She has to run to your beck and call whenever you want to hang out because you give her money. So Regina, according to her friends, were more like, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. That was her opinion. She didn't like Justin. She didn't think he was good for Kim, but she was going to be around them as much as possible to keep an eye on the situation. But that did not stop Regina from introducing Justin to her contacts in the gay club scene so he could move more drugs. Soon the trio were up to their tits and meth and cocaine, and this... Of course, you're pouring meth gasoline on this situation. It's going to spiral very, very fast. They weren't eating or sleeping. Regina reportedly lost 30 pounds in three weeks. Oh, my God. Just very unhealthy. All of the animosity that had been bubbling under the surface is coming to the top. There's jealousy. They're all feeling paranoid about one another. These three people were on a disaster train, and it was not stopping until someone was dead. Following a miserable trip to Cancun that Regina had planned for Kim's 19th birthday and had not included Justin, it was clear to Regina's friends that the situation had gone from generally bad to dangerously bad. So they planned it after. So they had planned it before Justin came into the picture. So that's not as, like, rude. There was, like, this whole thing where he was like, I'm going to stay at Regina's house while she's gone but he like brought guns into her house and her friends were freaking out they're like why do you have firearms in your house and she's like oh he's giving them to me as collateral because I gave him some money and they're like get these guns out of your house now so that's happening they're already scared about that situation and then they're like why are you associating with this like armed drug dealer and then when they were actually in Cancun because a couple of Regina's friends came along as well just Kim and Regina were fighting the entire time and It didn't seem like they wanted to do anything or go anywhere, do something fun, do something touristy, because they just wanted to do a ton of drugs and fight. They brought drugs with them. Or they scored them there. I don't know. But they were reportedly doing drugs on this trip. And so when they came back from the trip, the friends were essentially like, this is a terrible situation. 
I mean, you are still obsessed with this young woman who clearly is never going to give you the type of love in return that you are looking for. And you are now put in this very dangerous position with this couple because this guy she's bringing into the relationship doesn't seem very stable and he seems pretty dangerous. Yeah. And Regina did not back down from any fight. Her friends knew this about her. So this was a potential powder keg if she decided to put her foot down with this guy. As June of 1995 progressed, this is what is happening. It's exactly what's going on. Things were going from bad to worse. Justin and Regina now were constantly fighting over and overwhelmed and completely strung out Kim. She was just a mess. And they're all like just nipping at each other because Kim is being pulled in two directions. And Regina's saying, come over here. I want you to come over right now. And then at some point she told Kim, like, I'm going to pull all my financial support if you keep seeing Justin. And she was like now kind of acting like a parent almost like he's not good for you. You don't have to be with me, but stop seeing him. I'm trying to do this for your own good. He's obviously a cancer in your life. Now, she's not talking to Justin at all. One of Regina's friends overheard Kim leaving the house and Kim said that she was going to kill Regina. Uh... And that she was tired of being put in this position that Regina was putting her in. It was just all sorts of bad. Regina was overwhelmed with hatred for Justin, and she decided that if Kim wasn't going to get this guy out of her own life, then Regina was going to do it for her. So she called a friend of hers who was either a police officer or worked with the police and told her that she wanted to figure out how to turn Justin in for drug dealing. So that's how she's going to get rid of him. One night when she called Kim and Justin after she had started this process, I guess that Justin had grabbed the phone to tell her to stop calling Kim and to leave her alone. Regina was like, no, I'm going to be the one that's there at the end of the day for Kim and your ass is going to go to prison because I'm going to get you sent up. So she threatened him by telling him that she had all the power, that if he didn't comply, that she was going to make sure he was arrested. Yeah, that's not a good move. She definitely now put a target on her own back with a very dangerous person because Regina did not know, I believe she did not know, that he had killed before. So she is a spitfire, and she's not willing to back down, and she thinks she can still pull the puppet strings and control the situation. But Justin was not going to be threatened by a five-foot-tall nothing lesbian. There's no way. It was for him do or die time, and Justin Thomas, again, a man who'd already killed, was not going to be the one to die or go to prison. At least not yet. (laughs) So on the morning of Thursday, June 29th, 1995, Justin strolled up to Regina's apartment and let himself in as he had done dozens of times before. Regina's door was always unlocked. She was apparently lying on her couch in kind of a Valium daze. She was like half sleeping, half awake. She looked at him and said, what's up, Jay? And he said, hi, Reg. And then he began stabbing. Oh, my God. Justin, of course, was 6'4". I think even after all of the meth, he was still like 220 pounds. Well, Regina literally weighed half of him and stood only 5'1". But she fought like hell. Regina managed to knock the knife out of his hand, pick it up, and then slice the webbing of his hand as he reached for it. Wow. But... He not only weighed more, he was also a trained soldier. 
and he had taken martial arts courses for most of his life. And he's a former football player. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. He has all of the bulk and athleticism and military training behind him. So even though she had a grand fighting spirit, there was no way she was ever going to be able to win this fight. So Justin regained control of the knife and he just, like a slasher movie, began to stab her over and over again. The wound that eventually killed her went down through her neck and into the chest. And then as she collapsed, he stabbed her in the back. When Regina finally died after choking to death on her own blood, Justin lifted her into the shower and turned it on. So he did his best to let the blood drain from her body as completely as possible. And he cleaned himself up and then he did a very bad cleaning job on her apartment. He essentially even just moved a recliner over a large blood stain on the carpet. Okay. Didn't even try to clean it up. So he just moved the recliner, which obviously somebody is going to find. If she goes missing, they're going to look in her apartment. So I don't know what he was trying to do here. And he made some vague efforts to wipe down some of the surfaces. Justin then wrapped Regina in a comforter, carried her down the stairs and into her own Jeep. He drove to Kim's apartment and he told her what he had done, noting that Regina was much stronger than she had looked. Kim, by the way, 100% helped him cover up the crime. No. Yeah. It is very hazy how much Kim wanted Regina out of the way and why and how angry she was. And when she said those things, was she saying them because she was on a ton of drugs and she didn't really mean it. She didn't really want Justin to kill her. It gets very convoluted because of the rampant drug use and the fact that none of these people had had a good night's sleep in weeks at this point. But she stood by him. I mean, she was a full participant in the cover up. All the while, she also was draining Regina's bank account. So she had her card where she could take $300 out a day. But he had taken her purse when he took the body, too. And she's using Regina's card and taking out as much as she can. So she is, and they're also, I mean, making themselves look so guilty right now, but she is draining these accounts. So the original plan was to dump Regina's body in the Colorado River because Justin's family, I guess, had a place out there near the river. But after he could not sell the Jeep, because he wanted to get rid of her Jeep, too, to make it maybe look like she left. But nobody wanted to touch the illegal sale. So he's like, shit, I can't get rid of the Jeep. I don't think I want to do the river idea. Let's just burn the vehicle with Regina's body in it. So they decided to do that. And also, while they're doing all this, they're still doing coke and meth. Yeah, that's like unhinged. Yeah, they're doing a ton of drugs while they're trying to dispose of this body. They're not thinking straight. At 9.38 that evening, firefighters were called to the scene After they put out the blazing fire, they soon discovered the horrifically burned remains of a human being. An autopsy would confirm that it was a female and that the stabbing had collapsed both of Regina's lungs as well as some of the other wounds I described in the attack. And Regina had alcohol, cocaine, and Valium in her system at the time of the murder. Whoa. Which is a lot for mid-morning. Meanwhile, Regina's friends were starting to get concerned. Unfortunately, shortly before Regina had been murdered, she had asked her friend and occasional house cleaner, Jeremy, 
to clean her apartment up because I think she was having some friends over Sunday. So she's like, if you can get to it, this was on Thursday that she was murdered in the morning. But she's like, if you can get to it on Friday or Saturday, that would be great. So he ended up going in Saturday morning and there was blood spatter. There was like blood in certain areas. But because Regina had such an issue with cocaine and was addicted to it, she had very frequent nosebleeds. It wasn't uncommon for blood to be around the house or on surfaces. And she had also complained to him about having her period. So he just thought it was like gross and a mess. So he cleaned up the crime scene. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then he started to get worried when he didn't hear from her and her friends didn't see her that Sunday. And then he went back into her apartment because he had a key and she had two pets. She had a dog and a cat and they were not being fed. It was clear. So he takes the pets to take care of them. But he's like, she always tells me to take care of her pets or she gets somebody else to take care of them. Yeah, there's something going on. She's never abandoned them. So at this point, Regina's friends ended up meeting up on 4th of July in her apartment to decide what to do about Regina. Just to go back to her apartment, double check she's not there, look for clues. And so when they decided to do that, they actually walked in on Kim crying and scrubbing a rust stain that looked like a blood stain. Oh, my God. So she thought it was blood. She had been sent by Justin to clean all of the blood that he had left at the scene. They didn't know that Jeremy was going to come in and clean it. So when she came in, she was shocked that how clean the place was and that there weren't blood stains all over the place because Justin told her that she was going to have to clean the walls and stuff. And she did find this spot that she thought was blood, but it was rust. And so when they walked in, they were like, what is she doing? And Jeremy realized exactly what it was because he had cleaned her apartment several times. And he knew that specific rust stain because he had tried to get it out. She's like, I'm trying to just get the stain out. And he's like, that's a rust stain, honey. It's not going anywhere. And why are you trying to clean up blood anyway? Like, that's pretty suspect. So they were very suspicious of Kim at that point. And after she left, they ended up calling the police and reporting her missing. Good. It was on 4th of July, 1995. Only one year since she had met Kim. And it had been less than two months since Justin Thomas had come into their lives. Wow. He acted quick. This unraveled so quickly. After Regina's friends filed a missing persons report, it was easy to connect the missing woman to the charred remains in the Jeep that was, of course, registered to her. Dental records would confirm that the deceased was indeed Regina Hartwell. Now, later on, forensic techs would find Justin's blood in Regina's apartment, and they would also find his blood in Kim's Jeep and Kim's apartment where he had washed off. But at the beginning, they don't have that information anymore, but they had Regina's bank records, which showed somebody was taking a lot of money out of her accounts. And it was very easy to find out who that somebody was. Yeah. Kim LeBlanc. Yeah. Also, she was like buying the gasoline for the fire they set with Regina's cards. Yeah. Come on, guys. Yeah. They also talked to Regina's friends who said, if she's dead, it's definitely that Justin guy who killed her. 100%. Yeah. The armed drug dealer. Yeah. So both Kim and Justin were brought down to the station and they were in very bad shape. They immediately noticed that there was a cut on Justin's hand where Regina had managed to cut him. And he had a very strange, I don't know when this haircut happened. He had a very strange mohawk. It was like 
his head was completely shaved almost all the way to the back. So it wasn't a traditional mohawk where it was like it starts at the normal hair point. It was like very far back and then just like the strange little strip like right in the back of his head. Like a rat tail? Yeah, it was kind of rat taily. It just with his size and with the way he looks and the fact that he's on all these drugs at the time, it's a very chilling mugshot. And, oh, my gosh, Kim is just so clearly strung out. It's just obvious in the picture. Yeah, is she does not look well. And they begin to interrogate both of them, obviously, in separate rooms. And Kim did ask, and this was recorded, she asked for her parents and an attorney several times. And they just kept saying, well, you're not under arrest, so let's just keep talking. They did not give her an attorney. Oh, no. So that's going to come up later, obviously. Her mother and her abusive stepfather, though, were at some point called. So they did show up and they didn't think Kim had anything to do with this. So they knew they were like, it's that Justin guy. He's trouble. Just tell them the truth, honey. Just tell the police the truth that you didn't have anything to do this. And now she was I think she was just coming down and she needs more cocaine. She's sweating. She's feeling really sick at this point. And she just breaks down and she's like, Justin killed her. I helped cover it up. I just want to go home. I want to get out of here. I didn't necessarily want it to happen, but it happened. Okay, maybe I want it to happen. I don't know if I want it to happen. I mean, she was not well. So they did get her to sign an official statement. And this is what she said. Kim LeBlanc wrote, Regina Hartwell and I had a relationship that began on July 4th, 1994 until January 1st, 1995. May of 1995, I met Justin Thomas. He and I had a relationship since then. He knew a lot of things that Regina had done and the role she played in my life and was very concerned about that. Then Thursday morning, late morning, he left to go to her apartment to take care of something that I asked him to do. I asked him to get her out of my life. I could not handle her being a part of my life anymore. I asked him to help me kill her. She said that, but she later changed kill her to help me out of this situation like scratched a change when he left to go over there he did not say what he was going to do but we had an understanding of what he was going to do justin was subsequently arrested and they let kim go to a rehab program to get the help she so very desperately needed the love affair was most certainly over between the killer couple kim spent four weeks in rehab and as part of the program she finally told her mother one of her most deepest and hurtful secrets that her mother's husband of 18 years had raped her repeatedly starting when she was 14 years old. Good for her. Kim's mother, Kathy, immediately kicked Ken LeBlanc out and filed for divorce. Good for her. That is so hard. Wow. Absolutely, without hesitation. However, I don't know if this was a statute of limitations thing or just Kim not wanting to push it. No formal rape charges were ever filed. Meanwhile, Justin was officially served with divorce papers from Dawn while awaiting trial. He was also reprimanded for starting a trash can fire in prison and somewhere along the way managed to pick up a new girlfriend. (laughs) Yep, his new girlfriend was a high school-aged runaway who he had met through his cellmate. Oh my God. Who needs dating apps? So in August of 1996, Justin Thomas's trial began. The prosecution contended that jealousy, rampant drug use, greed, and a very twisted love triangle led a violent drug dealer to murder his romantic rival. There was, of course, all of the blood evidence and Kim's testimony. 
Justin's defense was that Kim did it all and that he only helped her cover it up and dispose of the body and the Jeep. He claimed that the blood that was found of his in Regina's apartment was due to a scooter accident that he had been in and that allegedly like the week or two before or something, he had returned to Regina's apartment to clean up after the scooter accident. And that's how his blood got into the apartment. His attorneys urged the jurors to follow the money. It wasn't Justin Thomas draining Regina's bank accounts. It was Kim LeBlanc who had been taking money and gifts from Regina far longer than Justin Thomas had ever been in the picture. Then, of course, they moved to absolutely assassinate Kim's character. And they said that she was someone who sells her body and her sexuality to the highest bidder. What was really unbelievable was that they implied that Kim had learned how to use her sexuality for her own benefit when she was only 14 years old. So you're listening to that and you're like, they can't be. They're not talking about when she was raped by her stepdad. That really can't be, right? Are they? 100% they were. Wow, that's a low blow. They get into the opening statement and you're like, no, that seems weird. And then when they start cross-examining her, they're on the stand forcing her to admit that she had a sexual relationship with her stepfather for four years. Uh, It's not a sexual relationship. It's rape. And she didn't want to talk about it. She's like, I don't see how this is relevant to the case. And the attorney said that it was relevant because much of the case was about sex. And the judge allowed a little bit of it to go on. And this was their entire case, was that she had learned at an early age that she could control people with sex. Yeah, that's not okay. She was raped as a child. Yeah. So this was disgusting. Furthermore, the defense implied that the prosecutor had given Kim a deal. There was no deal at this point. There was no formal deal that would compel Kim to testify for a lighter sentence at all. And they also said that maybe the provenance of this deal was that the young male prosecutor, Greg Cox, had been swayed or seduced by Kim. They, like, tried to imply that maybe he had hooked up with Kim or something. In closing, Justin's, one of Justin's attorneys, they both were gross, said, I think that a woman who gets on the stand and tells you that at the age of 14, she acquired the knowledge of the power of her sexuality. Well, that's scary. Kim LeBlanc is a con artist. She's a user. And she's only got one thing left to do to walk out of this deal. And that is to con you. She's already gotten past Mr. Cox. Oh, my God. Yeah, the other attorney stood up and suggested that Kim must have somehow benefited from the four years she was being raped by her stepfather because the lesson that she took away from that relationship was how to use her sexuality to get things she wanted. Oh, my God. This is disgusting. The problematic thing is that I was not Team Kim. I mean, no one in this story is a perfect person. But this defense, even if you're a juror and you're going, I don't like Kim either, now you're like, okay, maybe I am team Kim because this is reprehensible. Like, she deserves to be punished for her part in this murder, but this is not it, dudes. This is not it. Yeah, why are you not talking about her part in the murder? Why are you talking about her benefits that she got from being raped by her stepfather? Well, they're trying to say that she did the whole murder because she's this morally bankrupt person and she's trying to pin it on this big, dumb lunkhead who just came into her life two months ago. And stabbed Regina to death. Yeah, well, the jury did not think this tactic 
was successful, even a little bit too, which is made me think that this must be like a turning point where obviously these old school attorneys thought that they could get away with saying this type of shit and that it was going to fly with the jury. And this is the turning point where the jury says, no, that is absolutely not going to fly with us. And it's not going to fly anymore because they said that they were also confused and angered by the need of the defense to exploit Kim's victimization at the hands of her stepfather. They didn't think it was relevant to the case and they thought it was bullying and disgusting the way these attorneys went about it. It also turned them off how they had attacked the young prosecutor personally when they felt that basically he and his co-counsel, Gail Van Winkle, had been very professional and had been calm and methodical and they had not risen to the bait at all. Well, it took less than three hours for the jury to deliver a verdict. And I don't think it's a mystery what that verdict is, Andy. Guilty. (laughs) AF. The prosecution had not gone for the death penalty, though, because they had not put the death penalty on the table. Because statistically, jurors are more loath to convict on death penalty cases, especially if they're at all in the fence, which makes sense. You don't want the power to kill somebody. And they didn't know if this one was a slam dunk or not. So they had decided not to go for the death penalty. And during the sentencing phase, the prosecution dropped another bombshell when Dorothy Brown testified that she had watched Justin kill Rafael Noriega. So I think that they wouldn't allow this testimony to happen during the main phase. But after they found him guilty, they said, you need to hear this to inform your decision about what his sentence should be. And Kim LeBlanc took the stand one more time to testify that Justin had actually told her about that murder, saying that he killed Noriega because he was a narc. The jury believed everything. They believed Dorothy Brown. They believed he killed Regina. And they said that they actually, if it was on the table, they would have recommended the death penalty. But as it wasn't, in less than 40 minutes, they decided to give him the maximum sentence which was life in prison with parole possible after 30 years. And that's what he got. Despite technically not making a deal with the state, Kim's case never did end up going to trial. In October of 1997, a judge ruled the police videotape of Kim's confession and her subsequent statement that she made, they were inadmissible because she is on that record asking for an attorney seven different times. Seven times that they did not give her an attorney. Wow. As a result, the state had to drop the murder charge against her because that was all of the evidence they had. Otherwise, the only thing they had was the word of a one-time convicted murderer who was about to go to another trial for murder. So they decided that enough was enough. They got Justin and they had to let Kim go. Kim stayed clean, and in the same year that murder charges were dropped against her, 1997, she was married to a young man who, Susie Spencer said, looked a lot like her best friend, Tim Gray. Oh. Maybe he felt safe. She has since had children. She has never reoffended, And she became a cancer research scientist. Wow. So she really, really turned her life around. Her mother also remarried. They're building a stronger relationship with one another. And on Justin's side of the family, his mother is seeking counseling, according to author Susie Spencer, but his father ended up killing himself. Oh, no. 
And as for Justin, he ended up going to California so he could be tried for the murder of Rafael Noriega in late October of 2007. He was unhinged at trial. He was disruptive. He was interviewing people. He was muttering to himself. He wanted to represent himself because he didn't like the direction his attorneys were going in. Dawn was there to testify against him. So was Kim. And this is the only reason we know what Kim is doing for a living now or that she's married and had children because it came up while she was on the stand because she has very much tried to live her life out of the spotlight. Yeah. So he wasn't happy with the way his attorneys were going because his attorneys didn't really try to say he did not kill Rafael Noriega. They were just trying to present all of the mitigating factors that would cause a jury to say, don't kill him. They were more like trying to save him from the death penalty than they were trying to prove he did not do this crime, which he didn't like. But there was a long list of mitigating factors. One of his uncles testified that his mother had drank and smoked marijuana every single day of her pregnancy. So a doctor said that he definitely suffered from fetal alcohol syndrome and that his early drug use and subsequent addiction had permanently impaired his judgment abilities and impulse control. Not to mention all the things he witnessed and the abuse he suffered in his chaotic early life. When Justin got on the stand, however, he said that none of these factors contributed to his behavior, openly defying his defense team strategy. And he admitted that he did want the death penalty. And now this was not because he wanted to die. He thought that if he was on death row, he would get better resources, like better attorneys, better federal attorneys in order to fight his charges. And he believed if he had more resources to appeal both of his convictions, that he would somehow walk free someday. This is a bad bet, buddy. The judge and jury did comply with his request, and Justin Thomas was sentenced to death. Justin told author Susie Spencer in an interview that when he got out of jail someday, his first stop would be to a brothel, and then he would plan on adjusting to freedom. After that, though, he needed a good routine. He needed a job. He needed a purpose because routine in prison was keeping him active and happy and healthy. He said that maybe, she asked him what he would want to do with his life, he thought maybe he would start an internet porn business. (laughs) These are his grand grand dreams for his future. Yep. I'm going to go ahead and say that he's probably going to stay in prison. (laughs) Yeah, those dreams did not come true as Justin Thomas still sits on death row and will likely until he passes away in prison. In her author's note, Susie Spencer wrote the following, which I thought, was worth reading. I'm constantly asked why I wrote this book. My answer is always the same. Because it's the story of abuse, be it alcohol, drugs, sexual, physical, or emotional, and how it destroys lives unless admitted and faced. Three people in the story were involved in alcohol, drugs, sexual, physical, and or emotional abuse. One is dead. One is serving, well, she wrote, oh, serving a life sentence in prison because it was before his second trial, but is on death row. And one eventually admitted and faced her abuses and is sober and a functioning member of society. Functioning and contributing. And contributing. Yeah, she goes on to say that this basically could be any of us because there's a lot of people in life who never go to these extremes, but who are suffering with these types of abuses. And so even though this is a crazy story, it seems out there that it's we're all kind of more alike than we are different. But yeah, that's a big question, Andy, what you just said. Should she have 
gone to prison? Should she have spent more time? Should she have been punished somehow? And honestly, I don't know. Because I think on one hand, absolutely she should have. She got off scot-free. On the other hand, she was a troubled, still teenager who was overcoming a lot. And there's a chance that if she had spent even five to 10 years in jail or in prison, rather, that she would have never gone on to do cancer research. Exactly. I don't think she would have. So it's really a a counterfactual. We can't go back in time and see what she would have ended up doing. But at least she is doing something good and valuable with her life now. Absolutely. In conclusion, as Bonnie Raitt would sing, you can't make someone love you if they don't. (laughs) You can't. That's a great song. You really cannot. And at some point, you got to call it in. And hopefully you do it before it gets to this point. Yeah. And maybe let's just on this Wednesday, let's just say, like, don't do drugs. (laughs) Yeah, Let's absolutely say just stay off the drugs, kids. Yeah. Especially now. It's not the 80s and 90s anymore. It's scary out there. Yeah, there's fentanyl everywhere. Stay off the drugs, kids. Tell your kids to stay off the drugs. It is hard out there for... A young person trying to experiment. Don't do it. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Love y'all. Bye. Bye. Bye.